It's no secret. America is in the throes of the most significant public health crisis ever. Addiction and overdose impact millions of families. In 2017, more than 72,000 people died from an accidental drug overdose in the U.S., while more than 88,000 people die annually from alcohol-related causes. Those statistics, while harrowing, don't articulate what substance use looks like from person to person. As a society, we tend to look at substance use as cut and dry, a weakness or character flaw, when in reality, seeking pleasure is about as human as it gets. Avoiding pain is part of our daily cycle. This crisis is beginning to cause people to think about their behaviors and the way they treat others who use substances. So how does someone go from using drugs recreationally to building a tolerance or going through withdrawal? How can a high morph into an overdose? What about the family members who love someone struggling with addiction? What happens to them? Where do you turn when someone you love has died from a substance-related death? It's complicated. But with knowledge and support, hope exists. We are five women under 35 who have loved, lost, and learned more than we ever wanted to about substance use. Our goal is simple, to give a voice to people across the globe impacted by substance use and to let them know they are not alone. By sharing our stories and evidence-based research as our driving force, we hope to open minds and ultimately save lives. Join us, the ladies of Live for Lolly, me, Chelsea Laliberte, Courtney Gunkelman, Jess Weston, Stephanie Cyrus, and our producer, Danny Mastriani, as we use our heroin voices to get sincere, honest, emotional, and probably a bit controversial from time to time. Stigma ends here, but hope begins here. All right, so we're all here together for similar reasons, but we all have certainly different stories. For the last 10 years, people have tons of questions about what it's like to be somebody who's impacted by substance use, no matter what side of it you're on, whether you're using, whether you love someone, whether you've lost someone, whether you work in the field in the helping profession. But there are like some classic, classic questions that we always get, because I think, especially if you're a person who doesn't really understand this issue, you might not think, oh, wow, like that must have been really hard for that person. So I I thought like of just like a cool way of kicking this off, we could just kind of get to know what each other's experiences have been. So I guess the first question that we get a lot is, why do you do this? And I'm talking to me right now. You have chosen a career of addressing this problem. Like, why do you do this every day? So Steph, do you want to jump in and talk a little bit about you and and what's happened to you? So Chelsea, I lost my brother 14 years ago. So at this point, it has been a significant amount of time. I was only 12 years old when it happened. And so I didn't necessarily live through his addiction. It wasn't something that I was made aware of. I was too young. My parents really didn't involve me or my younger brother, but I very much grew up asking all of those questions that you mentioned and wanting to educate myself to better understand what addiction was and how people feel when they're going through it and how it does affect families. And so that's really the reason why I feel strongly about making sure that other people are well-educated and that people know that there's help out there if they are struggling. Wow, 12. Yeah. That's super young. It was. It was. So, like I said, I really was not, like, aware of what was going on and the struggle that my brother was dealing with. My sister was 12 when my brother died. Really? Yeah. So, I kind of know what you mean. And and what's interesting about Haley, and I hate to out her Mm -hmm. on this, but she took a total step back. Like, Uh I think for her, this was, like, way too hard and way too much, potentially. Mm -hmm. 
when you're 12, it's like you don't even you don't even know what your thoughts mean. So what kind of questions did you have during that Good time? Good question. And I don't the questions didn't necessarily come right then. My parents were very transparent about what happened, but I think them telling us that he overdosed didn't mean as much then that it does now and as I got older. So really I feel like the questions came as I started to get older. Really when I was 12, like my initial thoughts were like how could this happen? We have a really close-knit family, such loving parents. I was so close with my brother. He was very much like a role model in my life. Just so much confusion over how we could lose like one of the most important people to us and somebody who like was very much shaping my getting older. And it's such a critical time, I guess, in your like youth and development. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that. Courtney, what about you? I think, Steph, you just said, um, how could this happen? I watched my brother struggle for over 10 years, and I still have that question. So he was 30 when he overdosed uh, in 2015, and I was was in my 20s. (laughs) And I still had that question, even with, you know, having experienced watching him start, you know, with just smoking weed to... I found out in high school he was selling drugs, and I found out because he was selling to my high school friends. And then eventually it was in and out of jail. And then he was in rehab a couple of times. But I think you still can never really prepare yourself for how could this happen. He did nine months at a Christian-based rehab facility down in Fort Lauderdale. He was clean for close to two years maybe at, at that point, and then actually found out on Facebook that he overdosed. And I still had that question, how could this happen? So I think that's something that whether you're 12 or in your 20s or whether you were aware of, of the addiction or you weren't, you know, you're not immune, but you don't ever anticipate it. Wow. And you found out on Facebook. On Facebook. I'll never forget. I was watching Netflix and just happened to scroll on Facebook and saw that he was tagged in a post, said RIP. We lost another good one, and his name was tagged, and called my dad, and I couldn't get the words out at first. And so I just remember, I wasn't even crying at that point, just could not verbalize, I think Eric is dead. And it took us about 24 hours to actually have the sheriff's department confirm it, but my brother's employer actually confirmed it before that. And that's, that's another experience that part of why I want to do this is because I don't want somebody else to find out on Facebook that their sibling or their loved one, their parent, their child overdosed. Like if we could implore someone to take the next step of like maybe directly addressing it or going and picking up naloxone or whatever it is, we could potentially prevent that. I love that. I think even from the sibling standpoint too, there was a lot of anger that I had, a lot of frustration, a lot of questions. And I don't think I had enough empathy for my brother because I didn't understand addiction. And so if I could go back and, you know, even if all things had to stay the same, I I wish I just understood it more so that I could empathize with him and his struggle. And what's interesting is that if he had cancer or if he had any other chronic disease, somehow you may have probably been able to find empathy which is the tale of stigma and addiction, which is a whole other conversation. And Jess, how about you? Honestly, I'm here because my heart is broken. I lost my best friend and really close sibling about almost three years ago in December. 
I grew up uh, one of four kids and was the middle child with my brother Trent. Had wonderful childhood. All of our needs were met. Um, grew up in like rural Illinois area. And about at the age of what I remember correctly, I would say about 12 and he was 12 and I was 14. I noticed my brother start to shift, become a little bit more of a shell of himself, um, struggle with bullying in school, seemed to be a bit more clingy to me at recess, for example, and just seemed to feel a little lost. It was ups and downs. He would always test well on standardized tests, was a very intelligent human, but his grades were dropping. And none of us could figure it out. My parents sought support. I tried to love him and was there for him as well. But then he started to get experimental starting early years in high school with different drugs. I was always there as what I thought to be loving as being there for him and just trying to love him through it and not ask the hard questions and keep some secrets that he was telling me to have his trust. Essentially, he ended up going into university at Western Illinois and dropping out by Thanksgiving. I received phone calls from afar. He was still my brother, but he was someone different. And I remember getting one phone call that was like, Jess, I need to come home. And it chilled me to the bone and it really scared me. And within a week he was home. And through a series of family conversations, we thought the army would be a great choice for him. And so he enlisted and it worked for a bit. But once he was in the barracks, he had civilian rights and he was drinking. But from afar, it's hard to tell how someone's actually doing. And because they're going to say all the right things. Right. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. Right. And guess what? Like you can't, they can't, pro- you can't prove them wrong. Right. And he was a, a master of telling you what you want to hear. And so how much can you hear from afar and just on the phone? You don't really have a good pulse as to what's going on. But I thought he was just drinking because it was tough. It's tough to in that life. But then I received a phone call in December of 2016 with my dad on the other line, just sobbing, like, Trent's dead. And I remember being numb, almost collapsing, and just immediately angry because I knew exactly what happened. I, I knew that he had experimented with drugs and I knew that it finally overtook him and took him in this way and it just could have been prevented and I'm still angry. And I really am pushed and moved to make change in this space and really love others better and get the education out there and make the change that, that we need right now. Wow, how painful. I could hear it in your voice. I mean, I felt that way too. My brother actually also went to Western Illinois. Mm -hmm. This is not a knock against Western Illinois, but I just just want to make that clear. Like, we're not trying to ostracize him, but similar phone call. I need to come home. I'm coming home. I got mugged. All my stuff got taken away from me. I got beat up. And I'm coming home. Which is was totally uncharacteristic of Alex to say anything was wrong, in fact. He never acknowledged when there was a problem. So as his sister, like, I knew that something was wrong. You could just, I just felt it, like, in my stomach. And he was, like, stuttering, and and he just didn't sound like himself. And that's when I knew there was something really serious going on. And when he came home, he, it's almost like, it's almost like he was crying out for help, but he didn't know how to say the words still, because maybe he was so ashamed, or he didn't want to disappoint us, or he was probably scared, because when, I can imagine when you realize you have a dependency on a substance like that, 
like for him it was opioids and knowing that like you may have to say goodbye to your friend right because you build a relationship with the drug and it's like now I have to leave it like that's a comfort there's a psychological process behind that and I know that now but then you know I just remember so much shame and a lack of self-awareness too I think was something else that I saw in him that I didn't have I was always a very perceptive aware person because I handled life and emotions totally differently than him but the one thing that we had in common is we both sought out relief through substances I did for years I did it all through college so when he came to us with this it didn't surprise me And wasn't so far from like something that I felt like I could relate to, which is probably why I like didn't panic because I didn't think you never think this person's going to be dead soon. Like you just don't, nobody thinks that. And when we work with overdose victims now, they will tell you that they don't go into getting high thinking that they're going to OD or, or they think that they will be able to survive it. Like, this isn't going to happen to me. I know how to use. I'm a safe user. But I think that we know that that's, it's Russian roulette like every time. And my mom always used to say, you're playing Russian roulette when you don't take care of yourself. So, but when I learned about really how ashamed he must have been through doing the research about addiction is really when I got motivated to say, this was not his fault. He did not deserve this. And how many other Thousands and thousands of people out there are feeling this way. And then when we started this organization and people started to come forward because, you know, finally they felt like they could, it became really clear to me that we needed to keep going. And so I'm here tonight doing this podcast with you guys because we don't often get to talk about this detail. We don't often get to address like what really happens to families. So my motivation for doing this is out of sheer love for my fellow neighbors and like country men and women who are battling this and battling something. Everybody's battling something and maybe this will help one person. So it's interesting because all the stories are different, but they're similar. There's characteristics. It's funny. You, you mentioned um, just that your, your brother was home by Thanksgiving and Chelsea, your brother was coming home. It's not a knock on Western Illinois because my brother actually left university of Florida. So (laughs) not a college thing, but He also was there a summer and a fall semester, and he let his grades slip because he let the drug take over. And much like you all had said, very smart, very intelligent. In fact, sometimes I think how smart he was helped him figure out how to lie. Courtney, it's crazy how intelligent this population of people is. Mm -hmm. My brother was a don't even try to study for a test, ACE tests kind of person. He did not try. He skirted by. And in my work that I do as a counselor, like I meet people every day who are just genius, genius people, creative people who have stories and who are compassionate and just super wounded, like super wounded by the world and what they've experienced. So the similarities outweigh the differences for sure. So another question that we get asked a lot is, about myths. So there are a ton of myths. And that's just natural. You know, like you're going to have myths and like misnomers about things that aren't talked about, frankly. So for example, when we were kids and we were all in D.A.R.E. and the D.A.R.E. officer would tell you that drugs are bad, there would be no like expletive around that like explanation about like what that means and like what's the counter argument and like what, what all of that really alludes to. So you believe it, right? Like you believe what you're taught. 
there, drugs are illegal, so there's no option to have an open conversation about whether or not it's okay to use drugs. I want to know from you guys what you think myths exist about loving somebody with an addiction that you want to debunk. Personally, I think one of the things I thought in the moment was that when it got bad, I needed to be more of a tough love and like kind of be like, I'm not taking this shit anymore. Like, this is what I expect and this is like who I want you to be. In working with people in the community, I have quickly learned that personally, I don't think that's the right method. I think they need to be met with a lot of empathy and they're going to disappoint you time and time again. You have to expect that. But to really come from a place of love and understanding and just being an open door and, and knowing that they are known and loved no matter where they are. One of the biggest things that frustrates me and that kills me when I hear is that how could their parents not know? Or how mm. could their parents not stop it? Or how could you as siblings not stop it? And these are coming from people that I know and love and care very deeply for who haven't been in this situation. And the fact of the matter is, is they tried and they tried many different things. And I, I could sit here and I, I had a ton of guilt for a while because our relationship toward the end of my brother's life was not great. You know, had I reached out more, would it have changed anything? And the fact of the matter is, is I don't know. And it might not have, but there is not a single person out there that hasn't tried in some way, shape, or form to help their loved one. And it's a personalized journey, right? So certain forms of recovery work for one person, might not work for another. I have family members who have been able to just stop drinking cold turkey, whereas my brother had to go to rehab. It's not one size fits all. And that's something that I really believe is a myth that they should get into rehab or they should go to meetings or your family should have done something different. The should have thing is really like shame based. Mm -hmm. And I think when we say should have, it just tells you that like everything you've done was horrible. You're horrible. Mm -hmm. Why even try? Mm -hmm. That's what we do. We should people out of actual progress. It's not effective. What about you, Steph? So I w when you, Chelsea, asked the question about myths, the the thing that came to my mind was, and I think this is something that I've been dealing with for a long time, is that I, I took it very personally that my brother passed away from an overdose. And I think it's taken me a lot of time to understand that addiction is a disease and that it's not because he didn't love our family enough and that it's not that he didn't want to be here. It's just that this is something that really took over his life. And I think got in the way of those priorities. And I think it's really hard for people to understand that. And I think I'll always have a hard time understanding that. And I think just being somebody who hasn't gone through it, it is hard to wrap your mind around. Or how, how about it's one particular demographic? I mean, right. it doesn't discriminate. Mm -hmm. Like right now, there's so many white faces and white young faces that you see on ad campaigns and out there in the media in Chicago, the population most likely to overdose and die is a 45 to 55-year-old African-American man, and he's snorting drugs. That is not the image that is portrayed in the media. And the thing that you said about understanding, like, your priorities go completely out the window, that's actually a biological process that happens in the brain. After you've crossed over to this point where you have a severe substance use disorder or an addiction 
your brain is literally processing seeking the drug only. There's no childcare. There's no water. There's no food. There's no sex. There's not even like peeing or showering. You know, like that's not an option at a certain point. And you can't will yourself away from that. You can't just stop. I wish if we could go and redo the dare thing, it would be understanding how that happens, that it's a brain disease. Mm -hmm. I think, is that what you're trying to say a little bit? Definitely, yeah. And that's how it was described. I know we were all there. That it's similar to, like, if you were so hungry, your body knows you need food, you would do whatever you could to make sure that you got your hands on food, whether it was stealing it from a grocery store or eating out of a garbage can, like, because that is what your body is telling you that you need. And that in this instance of using drugs, your brain then decides that that's what you need in order to be able to live. Becomes a basic necessity. Right. In your mind. Right. There are some people who really think it's a choice. I'm hoping one of the things that the people listening will get out of this is that there's nothing you can say that's going to make us agree with you. We're not going to waver. We will listen. But if if you're hurt, if you are hurt because you saw your dad like beat the crap out of your mom, which listen, like I get where that comes from. Like that's horrendous trauma related stuff. It, especially with the generations kind of shifting over, I bet you your dad didn't want to do that. And I bet you that your mom didn't want to be on the receiving end of that. Sometimes people feel like they have no choice. And I think that that it's, it's so difficult to articulate because, because you have the right to be angry. Like you have every right to feel that way and you didn't have a choice. You had to learn to survive based on what your memories are now telling you. So, you know, I, I think that if we could go back and reframe how we were going to do teaching people about addiction, it would come with the whatever they call normies. People who don't have addictions would think are absolutely asinine behaviors that are horrendous and unacceptable are actually to somebody who's desperate to fill the dopamine in their brain um, necessary. And again, never taking away from the experience of that person, but challenging themselves to think about it based on facts, not based on experiences. Because if I went around all day saying like, my dad used to yell at me, and so that's why I talk loud and I can't change the tone of my voice. What, what I can, like I, I can. And so I think we stop ourselves. And one of the myths that I, I think is really critical, this happens with denial, I think, is a lot of parents and, and just family members and loved ones, they'll say like, well, my son or daughter is in a treatment center or they're in a recovery program. They're not going to OD. There's this kind of like survival instinct that actually goes into play like, no, they're safe. They're okay. And it's a similar reason why I think parents feel like potentially, you know, when your loved one gets incarcerated for a crime related to the, for their behaviors associated with their addiction, it's like for that moment, you feel relief, like they're safe. They're okay. When the answer to me a lot of the time is, is actually they're at the highest risk for overdose that is possible. When your brain hasn't engaged in opioid use or any sort of drug use, you are at a very risky place and good for you that you were able to get to that point, but you have to be uber extra careful about what you're doing. If you go back to those same locations that where you used to use, if you engage with those same people, it might trigger you to use again. So just to be super careful and to have naloxone on you and for parents not to think that they don't need it, not to think that they don't need a safety plan, not to think that communication isn't key. And in doing that, back to what Jess was kind of saying about if you're going to tough love them, maybe you should think 
twice because it's not necessarily going to get that person to say, I'm struggling. I need your help. I need somebody to talk to. Instead, it might just make them isolate and use. And so, you know, I think all these things are really important. But anyways, so another question that a lot of people ask is why is overdose death specifically significant or unique for those left behind as compared to other deaths? I think the initial emotion, at least I felt, was everything I could have done differently, said differently, prevented this from happening. I I remember being at the second funeral at the Army and just sobbing to my, my sister and my parents saying, like, I see it all now. Looking back now, I see this. And, and there's, like, every situation you're replaying and how to fix it because you feel like you had the power to change it. I think you deal with a lot of grief and, like, I should have that, thank goodness I saw a counselor pretty soon after that she really worked through and addressed that pretty head on saying, like, you don't have the power to change someone's actions. And that was a huge perspective shift, at least for me, as to, like, you're right, my whole life I thought I had the power and because of my relationship with my brother to change him and and help him get through this. But at the end of the day, it was helping someone get to their internal dialogue of wanting to help themselves and doing it for themselves. You don't have control to handle that. That's really interesting. I feel a lot of guilt. It sounds yeah. like that. And that's something that I still feel to this day. I don't think like I'm fully over feeling that. I don't know that I ever will have... of the guilt removed. But the other thing that I think makes overdose death different is there's a lot of people who have experienced it that can't talk about it because of the stigma that surrounds it. I know that, I mean, there's a lot of people in my family that that denial around how my brother died and they don't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed or ashamed or the community that we lived in won't accept that. There's there's a stigma there that we need to work on or else, I mean, the whole purpose is love thy neighbor, right? And I, when we found out that my brother overdosed, finally, when the police confirmed it to my dad, they my dad asked, well, why wasn't I notified earlier? And the sheriff told my father, people die here every day. I don't have your family tree. If that was somebody who had been murdered or somebody who had a heart attack or somebody who had cancer or a car accident, don't you think they would have notified my dad right away? And taken it like really seriously too. Yeah, really seriously. My brother didn't have a car. Somebody took him to Miami to go get the drugs. Somebody sold him the drugs, but it just wasn't important enough. My brother wasn't an important enough person. My brother wasn't a person in the eyes of the police department. Hmm. And I think that's something that makes it so different when it's an overdose is disassociating that person as a person. But they were still loved by somebody. They still had a family. They still had a life. Mm. Yes. And now, like, we're beginning to realize and people, I think it's becoming such a common social thing for people to start thinking now. Yes, we have to look at this like that. And it's really challenging people. We are challenging our law enforcement like no other time in history. We're challenging them with race. We're challenging them with 
the way that they were trained. We're challenging them in so many ways, but that is totally unacceptable and needs to change. Just like having a three strikes and you're out rule with giving the lock zone to somebody is a asinine, ridiculous, draconian rule that doesn't make any sense. Like a lot of these police departments are doing now because they don't want to pay for more naloxone or whatever their answer is. How many times should we let this person? What do you mean let this person? You're not letting them do anything. They're, they're being human. If this was diabetes, we would not be having this conversation. Not everybody agrees with the behaviors of some people who have diabetes. They don't have to, right? It doesn't matter. You don't treat somebody like that. It's one of the only types of death that can be prevented. Right. Exactly. What about you, Steph? Any other myth? We were talking about what makes the death of an overdose right. different. And that's a really, honestly, tough question to answer. I do think it's so different because I have been dealing with my brother's death for a long time. It surprises me how, after all these years, it's still so hard for me to talk about. Mm. And it's something that I, I wish I didn't avoid as much as I do. But it's hard when you're having, I guess, more like surface level casual conversations with people and it gets on the surface of family and I don't necessarily feel comfortable all the time. I would talk about my brother Tom all day every day but it gets into questions. That's where it gets really tough. You mean like how many siblings do you have or Mm -hmm. and then when you get into the topic of well what happened yeah it's almost like you can't talk about it because the person on the other side will be uncomfortable. And then we want to save them from being mm -hmm. uncomfortable which is bullshit. How do you guys answer that question? How many siblings do you have? That's something that I've always struggled with. I have two sisters and my brother is no longer with us. That's right. Because he was a person. You know, he was a, he was my brother. I'm never going to discredit him. I feel like that's what's different though about the loss of a sibling too, right? Right. Is how do you answer that? We're so young and should we have to say we lost our sibling? No, I think that you should say whatever makes you feel comfortable because the risk that you take in putting that out there is that that person can say something to you that might totally ruin your day. But at the same time, it's can you live in fear like that? Like, is that necessary? Or now that I've been doing this for so long, I'm just, I kind of do it like not to get a rise out of people, just but to say like, you know, this is me, this is my life and this is real. You know what? To this day, I have yet to have somebody like look at me weird or walk away. I will say that. I think for me, what at the beginning, there are so many questions around it. Everybody wants to know the every little detail and then certain things happen like, oh, well, you know, his dad wasn't around that much or, you know, do you remember his dad from baseball games? He was crazy. It's got to be his fault. Like, I remember people would say things like that, like trying to figure out the reason why this happened. And it's like, there, that is not what you're supposed to be doing. What you're supposed to be doing is saying, how can I support you? Mm-hmm. Not judging them, not trying to pick apart every little detail. Retell the story. Retell the story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is now like the most common accidental way to die. We as a society have to, must, must, must learn how to have these conversations. I think that the fact that it could be anybody in one second scares the living crap out of people. I think it freaks people out to know that death is so much closer than we all realize it is. And that by taking a drug, potentially one that a doctor prescribes to you, that you can die today. Like that's That is how serious it is, but that's how we have to talk about it, I think, or else we're never going to get beyond this. You know, and now it's like we've kind of segued from this prescription drug overdose epidemic to now like a heroin and now fentanyl crisis where doctors are prescribing less, but it's pushing more people to the street. And there's something about that stigma of buying drugs from the street 
that is still like uber stigmatizing, like, you know, to people. It's like, well, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. There's like 100,000 drug deals in Chicago every day. So I don't think that this is that rare. So I think it's, for me, it's around the context and the details of why people need to know every detail. Like, it's just like, I wish that they would just learn how to say, I'm here for you instead. I think another thing that I struggled with, with it being an overdose death is I I really don't know if it was accidental or if it was suicide. Hmm. Granted, there was no suicide note, but I feel like you sometimes don't know. I mean, they were flirting with a very fine line and you don't know if they were in a really hard place and they purposely took that much because they wanted to end their life or if they were just trying to get high. And I think for the people you leave behind, that's a a really tough thought. Of course, you want to think the best, but how do you know? Right. And and does that mean you love them less? No. No. Right. It just hurts differently, maybe. It hurts differently to know that they were in that dark of a place that they could use heroin and and do it without reaching out first. Right. So we have to do a better job as a society of opening those conversational doors if we are going to make a dent at all in any of this. We have so much work to do on this podcast, you guys. So so the grief experience is really unique. I'm 10 years in. I think I've definitely come to an acceptance point for sure. And then, you know, you kind of have these stages of grief that were established by Elizabeth Kugler-Ross years ago, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and acceptance. So do you guys think that that is legit? Do you think that it's, you know, has that been your experience? Has it jumped around? I don't think it's linear at all. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's reality at this point, so there is that form of acceptance, but I think there are still days that you are experiencing even when you have accepted it, denial or anger yeah. or any of the other stages. I guess it's it's not so much of a stage and it's not so much of I'm in, you know, this stage for a year and then this one for two years. I don't think it's that black and white. No. Grief is a roller coaster. Yeah. I think when holidays hit, you're feeling different. I'm about to turn 30, and that's the year my Ooh. brother lived to. <laughs> that's the year that I, he, he died when he's 30. So to me, that year is intimidating and a little scary. And I think, you know, I'll feel a little bit different in that year. And then when I see myself turn 31, because he didn't make it there. I don't think it's a ladder you're climbing. Right. Like there's no prize at the end. Right. Maybe Like I've than... made it to acceptance, so <laughs> right. everything is good now. I don't think it works that way. Right. No. I don't think there's an an, end goal. I think I heard someone say this once where it it doesn't get better. It it just is different. And so there's there's not an end goal of, okay, like I can move on with my life now. This is life post-trend. Like he's always a part of me. He's a huge gap in my heart that will always exist. And that is because I loved him so much. And that's a beautiful gap to have. and, And that is life. I think, especially at first, people will like throw grief books at you and and they'll say there's these stages and people just want to like, I guess, classify or try to put you in a box almost. Plan through grief. Right. But I remember even there was a whole summer where I was dealing with really intense, I would say, anxiety, depression about it. And I would wake up and almost 
not know or remember that my brother was dead yet and go through those stages really quickly. I remember that too. It's almost like it's like a floating feeling, like you don't know what reality you're in. It's very surreal. And I don't know that I would ever want to never feel pain about it. Because like then to me, it's like, what would that person have meant to you? If mm-hmm. What would Alex have meant to me if I didn't feel like I wanted to take a day out on his birthday to celebrate him or remember him in some way? I don't think it ever really fully goes away. And that's like one of the myths of grief is that like mm-hmm. someone dies and eventually you stop feeling pain. No, you don't. No, that's not that. That would be nice. But that's not how it works. Something about something that is beautiful about the grief process, though, is, you know, you get to this point where you're able to start an organization Mm -hmm. and, you know, host a podcast where you can help other people through your grief. Right. So while you miss the person you lost, that's that's what's driving you to help everybody else. Right. I agree. It's never okay. It never will be okay. But you do learn to get through at least most of your days in a more normal manner. I do feel like something that I guess has been a part of my grief is I do have this fear of losing other people close to me, just knowing like all of the pain that's brought on by this kind of loss. I just, it's something that would be like truly unbearable, which is so like, I try not to get let my mind go there because I hope I'm not at risk for that. But do you mean losing somebody else? In your life in general or yeah. to an overdose? It just in life in general. Like even just my parents yeah, that's when they're older. I mean, yeah. that's real abandonment. I mean. Right. No, that's true. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of even sense. Even my grandparents now, like, of course, they've lived, like, long, beautiful lives. But you, like, really. And I think, I guess, losing my brother at such a young age, I very much grew up. The person I am was shaped by losing him then. And that I grew up with, like, such an appreciation for my parents and my brother and my sister and like family has always been something that has meant so so much to me that I just can't yeah Mess. I think you would be better prepared or something no um, one prepares you for this no it's back to that question yeah. are you ever ready yeah <laughs> right do you ever anticipate loss I actually met Steph when I was 18 years old we went to the same university and I she'd always struck me as a very empathetic person and I didn't know about her brother's loss until five years later. And we were best friends in college. And it connected a lot of dots for me as to like who she was as a person and how good of a friend she was and how empathetic she was. And so I definitely hear you and like have seen that in your life before I even knew that you had lost someone. Yeah, I think that experiencing something like this gives you an added layer of looking out for people. There's so much adversity, and it's usually done in silence. Or, or acted out in silence throughout our days. I don't I don't think I would be as empathetic or good of a person as I know that I am if it wasn't for losing Alex. I really don't think that I would be. You're forced to grow up. Like you're forced to really see the world from a different lens when this happens. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that about Steph. She's so sweet anyway. Jess is the one that's the really great friend. We're just so lucky that we have each other. All of us. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's like a message too. When this happens, people need people. Like Mm -hmm. my family decided to come together. I'm really grateful for that. It could have gone the other way. We could have blamed each other and isolated ourselves from each other, but that's not what happened. Instead, we decided to like, oh, let's start a nonprofit organization. Let's see how that goes, (laughs) which, you know, it's been a, a journey, a huge journey. It's how we healed, you know? I think like listening 
to everybody talk about the relationship with their families and their friends, I think it just emphasizes the fact that we all came from good families. We all came from good backgrounds. We all had good friends. Our siblings had friends. And, you know, here we are still sitting here today with the loss of our siblings. So I think that just goes to show that for anybody who is listening that's experiencing this, like, it can happen to anyone. And it's happening to so many different types of families across the country. Like right now, you know, I think what's kind of happening, I guess, from the 30,000 foot view, like advocacy standpoint is people are like kind of numb to talking about overdose who maybe are or aren't impacted by it because it's like we keep hearing about it, but nothing's changing. We're still getting the same statistics. The outcomes are not great. We're not seeing like what happened with the AIDS crisis, like one day, like people just get treatment and and we started to see the death tolls just plummet. There are specific things we know we could be doing to change all of this and we're not doing it. For example, when Mac Miller died, it was like for five hours, people were like, like, let's see what everybody had to say on Twitter about this person and his craft. And then two days later, it was like old news, like nobody cared about it anymore. And it was like, what else? Brett Kavanaugh. Like, okay, that's what we're going to be focusing on today. It's like, it's so much information. And I think that there's like this hopelessness that comes with knowing about overdose and the epidemic where to the point where people don't know how to feel about it anymore. And I feel really grateful to have a tool. Whereas I don't know with other causes and what affects other people, if there's that available for them, but I know they can have one. It's just like, how do you get there? Like, how do you get there? Like, what made you guys decide that you wanted to come and help out this organization and do this podcast and donate your time to do that? Because it doesn't need to happen to anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's it's so scary. And, and I think, again, to that sense of, of helplessness, I know that my brother felt that. I know I felt that. I know my parents felt that. And you Google it, you try to read books, but it really didn't feel like there was a tangible resource that made sense. And through this podcast, through Live for Lolly, there are tangible resources that I have now learned about and want to share with other people that make sense. There's like empowerment in that, I think, a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm with you, Jess. We, I think it's so important to know that no matter what side you're on, whether it's a, you're a family member or a close friend or you are somebody who's struggling with addiction, there's help for everybody. And we definitely want to be able to share the ways you can go about getting that help. Right. With all of you. Absolutely. There is help. We have spent so much time and energy finding help for people (laughs) that treatment access and capacity is getting better. And we keep telling people like, ask for help, reach out for help, we'll help you. The challenge then becomes finding proper placement, making sure that they can get there, making sure they're comfortable there, checking off all the boxes, making sure we've done a thorough assessment so that we don't put a trauma victim in with people who who are similar, look like, sound like, are similar to the abuser, making sure that we're protecting people. We have not done a thoroughly good job of that in this country. So that's one thing that I think I really want to focus on at one point. But is there anything that you guys want listeners to know like that you wanted to know that you didn't know until now for our little wrap up here? I think for me, from the perspective of losing a sibling, I my darkest, really scary days and moments are when I shut myself from everyone and wouldn't go to a friend or family 
or any support group for help. And that I regret that so much. And I could have gone through a lot more healing. And I found that communities with whether that's friends, families, anyone to talk to was was really important and was was really powerful in getting through that. And I know it's the hardest thing to do to reach out for help, but please do. Yeah, I agree, Jess. I think take care of yourself in those moments. I thought I was fine. I've lost other people in my life. My brother was just, you know, somebody else. You know, six months after that, I started having panic attacks and serious anxiety, moving into depression, and because I thought I was fine. And I think there's something to be said about talking to people about it. And, you know, I'm a big advocate of therapy, so <laughs> wish I would have gone sooner. But I, I think that, you know, even if, even if you think you're okay, even if you've processed a loss or are trying to work with somebody in recovery or, you know, are wanting to be in recovery yourself, talk to people about it. They'll help you find resources. I agree, Courtney. You're never alone. It's important to remember for everybody. Right. And I think the younger generation, too, really gets this unlike any other generation right now because they're all dealing with it. Like, I counsel so many high school students who having a mental health conversation is like an everyday occurrence. Like, they know all the people in their circle who have depression, who have tried to commit suicide, who struggle with self-harm. They know all of that stuff and they talk about it openly. I tend to think that it's older generations that really have a hard time. I think the 30 to 40 year olds are kind of somewhere in the middle of that, but generally are pretty open. I think for me, what I want people to know is that two things. One, you cannot control this. You can't control it. You didn't cause it and you can't cure it. And that is right from the big book. If you wanted to know where I'm quoting, um, you know, it's true. You have very limited control over how this works. So if you're a loved one, you have to find a way to relinquish that control. And if you don't know if you have a problem with it, one way to find out would be to go to a support group. You can look up Al-Anon, Smart Recovery, Friends and Family. You know, there's a lot of different types of groups out there. Families Anonymous. There might be a group at your church. You know, you, you never know, or synagogue or wherever, whatever you practice. And then I think the, the last thing I'd like people to know is that you don't have to go to rehab to make positive change in your life. I think for the goal for a lot of families is let's just get them into treatment. Let's just get her into treatment. For a lot of people, that is not a reality or it's very scary for somebody to want to make that choice. So I like to, and I'll quote my, my colleague and late friend, Dan Big here, who founded Chicago Recovery Alliance and is the godfather of naloxone. He was the first man in the world to hand out naloxone to people on the street. Any positive change can mean anything. It can mean using one less bag that day. It can mean telling someone you love them. It can mean just reaching out for a clean needle. It could mean going to treatment. It could mean getting on methadone. It could mean anything. It can mean abstinence. It can mean anything. We cannot be so rigid in our expectations for people, no matter what, but especially when it comes to a mental health issue like this. So any final words? There's hope. There's hope. There's hope. And you can make a difference. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful life after death. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. And thank all of you guys for being here and talking with me. Thanks, Chelsea. Thanks, Chelsea. All right.
If substance use in any way impacts you, you are not alone. Help and support are available. Live for Lolly is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, safety, and education for patients and families impacted by substance use disorders and other mental health conditions. For information or help, please visit us at liveforlolly.org or on any of our social media channels. Call 844 584 524 or email us at info at liveforlolly.org.